This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. Woo, today. So if you haven't noticed... We've been dropping into our regularly scheduled podcast programming to bring you several bonus episodes that didn't fit into our series, but were so important to me and to my team that we wanted to build a conversation around. So first of all, thank you for the feedback and for being the ones that actually really inspired us to host these conversations based on your questions on social media. And honestly, just your general willingness to hear from people who walk in these spaces that matter to us right now, who have wise and measured outlooks on these issues. These conversations have been incredibly enlightening and sobering, but also encouraging. So obviously, we've got an election coming up in the fourth quarter, and we really wanted to bring you content that would inform you from people that can relate to this community, right? Maybe they share some of our concerns, some of our questions, uh, the pain points that as a community, we sort of rally around often and, and even understand the shifting tides in our country and the complexity when it comes to these important issues. And, you know, we are just looking at the political landscape 
And we're asking ourselves as a team, like, how do we lead well here? How do we host the important conversations? How do we move the needle forward? How do we advance respectful dialogue? How do we build the world that we are hoping to see? The one that we want to hand to our kids, right? And so, so continuing in this vein, we've got a guest today. He's actually been on our show before. And we're going to talk about some of the really just like urgent and key issues that are dividing our country, particularly in Texas, where he and I both live, but also at large, also all of the United States, right? We wanted to bring him back to give us a politician's view of these important issues and how to sort it out, what he is seeing, what feels hopeful, what is our role to play. And so lucky us. We have today former U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke on the show today to talk to us about all of these things. We're going to place a little emphasis on voter rights, that super important conduit in order to not just have our voices heard, but counted. That is the primary way that we make a difference, right? He is just he's the best and he's great. And I hope you follow him. Beto's pretty passionate about a lot of things, but particularly about expanding voting rights. And he makes this very clear in the interview, but not just for like his political party, everyone, like whether you're a Democrat or Republican, or you aren't affiliated with the party at all, it doesn't matter. Voting is the right of the American citizen, right? And so he has a new book called We've Got to Try where he takes a look at the history of voting in Texas and how it has been made either easier or harder, depending on who has been in office. And he also discusses sort of the current fight over elections and voting rights happening across the country. It's incredible work that he is doing. And this conversation is, I think you are just going to be encouraged. Really, wherever you fall on the voting spectrum, whatever, wherever you live, honestly, stay tuned here because This conversation is positive and it is uplifting and it is hopeful and it's energizing. Really, no matter where you are, Beto's doing incredible work in our state and I'm really proud of him. I don't know how that sounds, but I just am. I'm really proud of how hard he works and how tireless he registers unregistered voters across the state and how, (laughs) what a list that has been for him. And but how excited he is to do it. Let me give you just a teeny bit more detail if you're unfamiliar. Beto Aroak, he's a fourth-generation Texan, okay? He was born and raised in El Paso. He was a small business owner. He was a city council representative. And then, of course, he was a member of Congress. He founded and currently leads Powered by People, which is a Texas-based organization that works to expand democracy, really, through voter registration, and then direct voter engagement. Powered by people, you guys helped register over 250,000 unregistered Texans to vote since its inception in December 2019. Isn't that incredible? Like, whoever you are, that is incredible to get that many unregistered voters to the polls. How phenomenal. What good work. I have just admired Beto and watched him and followed him. I very much respect his tone, the way that he engages with not just his political opponents, but the constituents of Texas, whether or not they vote inside his party. He is just 
reliably respectful. He's compassionate. He's a good listener. I admire, I admire the way that he leads and that he runs campaigns and the way that he engages. It's refreshing. And I think that you will enjoy this conversation. I think you'll, you will also kind of respect his outlook and his perspective and really his posture. And this is the state he loves and the one that he fights for and champions and believes in. And it's just inspiring. And so please enjoy this smart and intelligent and interesting and ultimately hopeful conversation with the very wonderful Beto Aroa. Let's go. Let's just jump into it. Thanks for your Great. time. I am so happy that I'd welcome you back to the For the Love podcast. Thank you so much for saying yes to this. I'm grateful for the invitation. And I wish we were doing this in person, but I love that we get to do this virtually and talk about some of the things that are on your mind and the things that you know we're, we're working on and people are fighting for here in Texas. Yep. We're paying attention. We are listening. We are engaged. We are concerned. We even have the hubris to be hopeful. And so this is why I'm glad that you're here. Let's, let's do this real quick. Just let's high level this for a second. I've caught my listeners up a little bit on you and what you have been up to since the last time you were on my show, which was 2018. That was big year. And so just from a general perspective, from a high level, how have you been Now that we have been through and are still in a pandemic, a presidential election, and then every manner of things that has been happening in the public sector period, but specifically also in Texas, what's it been like to be you the last three years? I'm best when I'm most engaged in the work, because, you know, given everything you just described, the the pandemic, the recession that ensued that hit Texas particularly hard these tragedies that the public has borne witness to in Uvalde or back in my hometown of El Paso in in 2019, this recent Supreme Court decision that has a lot of people, a lot of women in Texas, really scared, really frightened, really angry. A lot of us who, as a guy, right, who perhaps took so much of this for granted, and, you know, frankly, as, as a white guy in, in the state of Texas who hasn't experienced so much of what I am learning about from others who haven't had my same experiences, you know, being engaged in the work, meeting voters, registering folks to vote, being a volunteer, which I was for two years with a group called Powered by People, engaged in voting rights and just civic participation, not on behalf of Democrats, by the way, and not on behalf of Republicans, but just on behalf of people having a voice and a say in government and some agency in our individual and collective effort to overcome so many of these challenges. That's been the, the most fulfilling thing I think I could have done outside of, of being with family. And it, it also, I've, I've learned just personally that it becomes the antidote to despair or to despondency or to depression, even just being engaged. It's just, it's hard for me personally to be sad when I'm at someone's door 
listening to them, talking with them, when working with organizers across the state of Texas who are trying to do everything they can to ensure that we win political power so that we can do something about this. That, that has all been deeply fulfilling. I've been at my worst, at my absolute lowest, when I've just felt like, well, what, what the hell can I do? Or I can't do anything, or, or we're screwed, or we'll never, we'll never overcome this. That, that is a, that's a hole that has no bottom. And so, yeah, that's um, right. you know, being, being engaged, doing the work, that's, that's been great. And, and my family has been just wonderful throughout this. And I, I, I wonder what it's like for others, but for Amy and me at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be together in a way like you've never been together before. That's right. And I was in Congress for six years. I was campaigning for Senate for two years. We hadn't really lived day to day for eight years together in the same house, maybe like a lot of people do. And so I thought, you know, it's either one way or the other as we go through this pandemic. And it, it just brought us closer as a family. I see, I feel very, very, very fortunate for that. And I don't want to in any way minimize what others have been through. It hasn't been easy for anybody, but we, we've been very, very fortunate. Thank you for asking. I'm so happy to hear that because Amy could have been at any point like, hey, listen, buddy, you need to get out there and start another campaign. You're underfoot. You are in my hair. You need to get busy to another like political hobby. And so I'm glad to hear that you stayed in her good graces. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk here in a minute, particularly, I really want to drill down with you on, on voting and why expanding the vote, of course, to everyone who is eligible, making it easier for people to vote is so important. But before we go there, and you touched down on them briefly, because I have you here, everything feels so urgent and tender and in some ways scary. I'd love to hear you talk for just a few minutes on some of the issues that are weighing on our hearts and our minds and my community and the women that I lead so very much. We can hardly think about anything else, of course. And so I wonder if you wouldn't mind high-leveling for us a couple of areas from your perspective as a community advocate, as a politician, possibly, hopefully, our governor in Texas, maybe give us a little hope, maybe some direction, some clarity. Let's talk about gun control for just a moment. Obviously, Uvalde was, we still don't know how to talk about it. Just a tragedy of endless proportions. And of course, it's repeated basically weekly at this point in some manner, in some other city, in some way. The whole world was heartbroken for Texas but when Uvalde happened. And so as a Texan, it's tempting to despair because we're so divided internally as a state around gun control. I mean, we feel equally as passionate on the far poles of this discussion. And so I'd love to hear you talk through your views on responsible gun legislation, what it looks to have gun safety, gun responsibility, what you would love to see. Do you have hope for the state of Texas here? I have a lot of hope. You you mentioned this at the at the outset of our conversation that you know some people are are even summoning the the power to hope right now. And I do think it's an act of courage to to be hopeful because you know there's there's every reason in the world not to be given the news and all the things that you just described. And after Uvalde, you know, knowing that these 19 beautiful, beautiful, beautiful children were, were shot and killed 
in such a terrible way that their two teachers who did everything they could to protect and save the lives of those kids lost their own lives in the process. You, you can say there's there's just too much evil in this world and who are we to stand against it? You also might be tempted to succumb to this idea that this is just our fate in Texas. You know, 23 people murdered in El Paso in, in 2019. The kids killed at Santa Fe High School, Sutherland Springs in a church and a house of worship of all places, Midland, Odessa. You know, of course, it goes on and on and on. But we, we can take some comfort, I guess, in knowing that this doesn't happen everywhere around the world the way that it happens in Texas and in this country. And we are not inherently evil or bad right. or violent or you know bloodthirsty. It, it may have something to do with other factors that contribute to this, you know, the, the fact that an 18 year old, for example, can go in on his birthday or, or near about and buy two AR-15s and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. And really there aren't many questions asked. And, you know, we can decide you and I together as voters, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, whether we think that's okay, or whether we think there might be some common sense adjustment we could make so that perhaps you have to be 21, or, or maybe you can't buy a weapon that was originally designed for use on a battlefield because that weapon was only engineered to kill human beings. It's just really, really good at it. It just shreds to pieces everything inside of your body so that you bleed out if you're shot before you can get up and be revived. You know, th these are legitimate conversations that we can have. And Jen, I was in Hondo, Texas, right next to Uvalde, I'd been in Uvalde the, the day after the massacre there. I had stayed in, in Hondo. I was on a, a run that morning and I saw a guy watering his lawn and he motioned for me to come over. And as I came over, you know, he had his Confederate battle flag, you know, ball cap on. And, you know, there's it, a little bit of a conservative part of Texas. And I thought, well, I wonder, I wonder how this conversation is going to go. And he said, I just saw you on the news, Beto. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here in your community. I'm just so sorry for what you all have been through. And I, I just want to be helpful. And he said, you know, I've got a bunch of guns in my house. I have an AR-15. He said, but I also have a junior at Hondo High School. And, and I, I worry about him. And, and what's happening is not right. And we got to do something about this. And I, I mean, who knows where that conversation could go. but you know, this guy, if I was just judging him by his ball cap, you know, he and I aren't going to have anything in common, but he's got a kid in high school. I have two kids in high school. That's right. We both care about their lives. We, we recognize that we kind of won the lottery in some way that our kids, you know, completed the year unscathed, but that might not be the case next year. And if, if we invoke our power of empathy, you know, we, we feel some degree the way those parents feel who lost their their kids and and knowing that we got to do something so i don't think this is an issue that breaks along partisan lines or gun owners versus non-gun owners i think this is one where our values as humans as texans as americans can really come through and and we can do some common sense things like a universal background check or red flag law this this is stuff that most of us agree on so i am hopeful that's right. Bipartisan support just in the constituency is pretty high. This is, we agree on this. We all want to send our kids to school and have them come home safely, whoever you are. And so I'm hopeful around that one too. I feel incredibly disoriented 
about Roe, as do most of the women in my under my leadership and in my community. Genuinely, not something that we thought we would see. This felt like settled law, fifty years, double precedence at the Supreme Court level. This reversal to states, it's scary in a state like Texas, particularly, and the others like us, which for us, we knew that that would mean an immediate cancellation of agency, autonomy over your body, your future if you're a woman. And frankly, the the men and the boys, that means that they also don't have a choice in what their future looks like with that partner. And and this is tricky because, you know, I came up through originally through sort of a, a faith space. That was where I cut my teeth and that was where my leadership originated. And as I've gotten older and grown and my perspective has changed and I've grown up, my kids have grown up, I've just expanded and evolved in a lot of ways, things that I believe in ways that I think about humanity and possibility and, and rights. And so it's interesting because as you know, we have a group of people looking at this sort of reversal, if you will, of Roe and rejoicing and saying that this is a wonderful win and 50 years coming. And there are other of us who feel like we're taking such a step backwards and it feels scary that if this is the sort of autonomy on the chopping block, what else, what's next? right? Like what is now possible if we have this precedence to revert rights to the states, then just based on where you were born, where you live, where your grandparents lived, you may now be facing an absolute cancellation of what we thought were established rights. It's overwhelming. Can you talk about this decision a little bit from your perspective and how do you see it and what are you hoping to see? What if you're elected as Texas governor, what would it look like, for example, in our state? First of all, I love everything that you that you just said because you are describing how difficult and challenging an issue this is. Because I, I don't I don't think people come to this from a place of malice. They come from genuinely held personal beliefs. And there are some who believe that life begins literally at fertilization, at, at conception. And there, there are others who look at the science or the legal precedents in this country and, you know, look at things like viability. And, you know, th- those, those are conclusions people have arrived at through their religious experiences, through their life experiences, through, you know, their reading of the science on it. And I think I begin with the humility of understanding that I, I'm not here to persuade anybody or to change anybody's mind or, or point of view. What we should really be focused on is how we do the greatest good for the greatest number of people who we live with in, in the state of Texas. And as you just pointed out, for millions of women to lose the ability to make their own decisions about their, their own body and to acknowledge that no woman makes a decision about her pregnancy frivolously. And you, as I have probably, especially since the Dobbs decision, heard countless stories from people, very personal and no story like any other that I've heard that helps to explain just how dangerous a decision this is. And I'll give you an example. We were in Katy, Texas, week before last, and we were there with 
with young people and people of all ages who were organizing to go knock on doors for the campaign. And a woman came up and she had her child four or five, six months in a stroller. And she said, I grew up an evangelical Christian, very, very pro-life. And what changed my mind and my understanding of this was I became pregnant with my son, who you see right here. And it was an incredibly difficult pregnancy. And the only thing that got me through was knowing that I had the choice, knowing that I had this option. And it, it fortified me and it gave me strength. And it also, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if this is the right word, but it gave her this additional power of empathy to understand what other women in a similar situation have been through and how some could have chosen to terminate their pregnancy. And it may have replaced judgment that she felt about them with, with an understanding and a compassion. And it was, it was really beautiful. And so there are so many stories like that, elevating those stories and honoring people who feel differently than we do by listening to them and respecting their point of view and then finding the common ground, I think is a great place to start. When I share with people that as Texas has over the last decade closed so many reproductive health care clinics, it has not only made it harder for women to get an abortion, it's made it harder to get a cervical cancer screening That's right. or family planning help or the ability to see a doctor at all. And, and partly because of that, we now lead so much of the world in the rate of maternal mortality. That's right. And for Black women, the rate is three times as high. We lead the country in both the rate of teen pregnancy and repeat teen pregnancy because we make it hard for, for people to make family planning decisions or to get family planning help. So as governor, I want to make sure that we restore the protection for this right. I, I don't think the right has to be restored. I think the right is inherent. It's universal. We look back to 1776 and this declaration about these inherent inalienable rights that, that we all hold. I think this country has come to realize that those rights are also reflected in a woman's ability to make her own decisions about her own body and her own future. And you alluded to this, other rights that we've now recognized, the right to marry the person that you love, to be intimate with, with the person that you love, to use contraception. All three of those rights are under attack now, as we know from the consenting opinion or concurring opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas that came with the Dobbs decision. So as governor, let's find a way to harness public sentiment on this. Like with the guns issue, most Texans believe in choice. They want to make sure that we respect this precedent and these rights. Let's find a way to enshrine that legislatively through executive action where that makes most sense and to always do so in the most respectful way possible that always acknowledges that not all of us are going to agree on every part of this, but we've got to do a better job of treating one another with the respect and dignity that we're owed as, as humans. And in this case, in Texas, that's the women of Texas. That's right. You have led very well on this. You set a good example. You're a good model on what it looks like to dialogue across ideologies and convictions and to do so with respect and to be a good listener. I've always appreciated that about you, you know, as we steer into campaign season and it's just so vitriolic. And of course, we're all just exhausted just to death of it. And so it is refreshing to see you, to watch you, the way that you engage with Texans, even those who are probably never going to vote for you. 
And yet you host those conversations with the same degree of respect. I appreciate your uh, deep understanding and compassion around marginalized communities, particularly in Texas, but everywhere, knowing that you and I, to, to some degree, almost entirely, you entirely, and me almost, if I was a man, have been centered our whole lives. We are privileged and we are the centered voice. We're the, we're the one in the room that generally gets to be heard. And I have black kids. I have a kiddo in the LGBTQ community. I come at this not just as an activist and as a leader, but as a mom. As I look at the groups that are marginalized, who generally bear the brunt of of the legislation that you and I are talking about. So can you talk for just a moment around some of the legislation we're seeing regarding trans rights right now, specifically in Florida and Texas? These bills feel, they don't just feel shocking to me, they feel cruel, cruel and unusual. So I wonder if you would walk us through your thoughts here and what do you think that we can do to make sure that every single kid, however they identify, can be like supported and safe in their schools, in their homes, and frankly, in their lives? Yeah, such a good question. And in, in the way that you asked it about the cruelty that is inherent in these policies, I don't fully understand it. I, I don't think, for example, that Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, you know, that, that he wants to hurt kids or that he wants to hurt transgender kids or that he wants to destroy these families. I, I don't think he wakes up in the morning wanting to do that. I, I don't know then why he has issued this order that essentially puts a target on the back of these families. And, and essentially, for those who aren't familiar with this, in Texas now, parents of transgender kids are, are being targeted for investigation for child abuse. And as you know, Jen, in Texas, if that accusation is sustained, not only is that child, the transgender child, taken from those parents, but so is every other child in, in the household, because that household is now deemed to be unsafe for those kids. And what you and I both know from meeting so many of these parents is it's hard to find a more loving family. You know, parents, you know, it's tough being a mom and, and a dad, just period. Okay. But if if your kid is trans, helping them navigate these middle school or high school years, which are already tough to begin with, and, and you're you're going through this transition, there is so much extraordinary love in that household and so much patience, so much grace. And I just, I'm just in awe of these parents. And I met so many of them. And and to to meet them and, and to meet some who are actually under active, you know, child protective services investigation, knowing that at the conclusion of that investigation, their kid that they've raised for the last 12 years might be taken from them. They may never see them again. It is just absolutely heartbreaking. And the only way I know to meet that now, and you do such a great job of this, is to elevate their individual stories. If we just say transgender or trans kids or this policy or that policy or this talking point or that talking point, we may very well be talking past each other. But if you say, mm-hmm. hey, I want you to meet this child yeah. who I just spent the day with and yeah. they've got hopes and dreams just like my kids. Sure. They're an amazing guitar player. Sure. They have this beautiful, bright future. And all they want to do is really be left alone to figure out their own stuff and to contribute back to the world in some really beautiful ways. Let's, let's let them do that. 
So where this cruelty came from, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's to score political points or if there is profit in fearing the other, but we, we got to get past that because I don't think that's who we are as Texans. You know, our, our values, we, we are a strikingly independent people. We cherish our freedoms and to have the government come in to our families and tell us what we can and can't do and how we may or may not raise our our children or help our kids in, in a situation like this one just does not seem like a very Texan thing to do. So yeah, let's, let's share each other's stories. And then, you know, at some point we have to act. And I think back some of this anti-gay and anti-trans legislation is really important, but then the power of rhetoric and, and making sure that we all remember that Texas is a big, big state. It's big enough for all of us. And we're really proud of the people who make Texas so successful and so strong. So I'm glad you brought that up because here's a community, very vulnerable. They don't have uh, lobbyists and advocates and, and people spending big money on political campaigns to advocate for them. So they're very easy to kick around politically. And so we, we need to stand up for them. So thank you for doing that. Mm, absolutely. Let's talk about voting a little bit. The whole thing, the process, the registration, mail-in, we got a lot on the table right now. And for, I think, a lot of average voters, it's a little murky. Like, what is the problem here? Why is this becoming so difficult? Why is there so much suspicion and fear around an election process that has always been incredibly stable, very reliable. There's no data to suggest otherwise, and there never has been. And yet the narrative right now is that it's just all going to hell in a handbasket. And and so thus we see this absolute crackdown on voting, and it just feels so undemocratic. And so if you could just talk for a moment around the election process, how it is, what it is, is it stable? And why does it seem that so many elected officials are intent on making it harder? And in what ways are they making it harder? I think just one one step back, it's just so important just how extraordinarily exceptional our form of government is. In, in the whole of human history, very, very few people on the planet have ever pulled off anything close to a, a democracy. And even today, though there are more democratic countries than have ever existed before in the history of the world, it, it's it's not easy. And, and most of the planet does not live under free and fair elections. And we don't all the way have them either, as, as you are, are alluding to. And we should acknowledge that that's not completely anomalous to to America. I mean, when we started, you know, 240 plus years ago, only white men with property could vote. And then the franchise gets extended a little bit to people, white men without property. And then, you know, you have this flourishing of democracy during Reconstruction, and then it closes back up again under Jim Crow. Then you have women and suffragists leading the movement for the franchise for the other half of the population, at least by gender in, in the country. And then th this is the thing that I'm most proud of, I think, of Texas. In 1965, the first Texas president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, signs into law the Voting Rights Act, which really for the first time since Reconstruction allows everyone to participate in the franchise, regardless of race, 
or ethnicity or country of national origin. It's really this beautiful moment. And what I think happened, if I had to guess, is that we we won. You know, that's what we thought, those of us who love democracy and, and free and fair elections. But what I now understand is that, that that wasn't a final victory. You know, it was an important achievement and milestone, but none of these victories are final. You always got to keep fighting because the forces that are fighting against democracy, they never rest. And so that Voting Rights Act has been chipped away at over the years to the point that you have the Shelby decision in 2013 from the Supreme Court. And in Texas, you have these voter ID laws, you have the racial gerrymander of our state, you have hundreds of polling places closed down, primarily located in the fastest growing black and brown neighborhoods in the state of Texas. And you get to a point where we have the, the toughest state in the nation in which to register to vote and in which to cast a ballot. And now Republicans are the ones leading that effort right now. But just so everyone knows, Democrats did the same thing, you know, 100 years ago in the state of Texas. Th this is not about party. This is about power. And people in power, I think this is just a human truth, want to stay in power and they want to grow their power. And you, we know that line that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more power you get, the more power hungry you are. And I don't think any human or any party is immune to that. The beauty of our country is you have all these checks and balances and these laws that are supposed to protect democracy. But you're right. It, it is under attack, unlike any time during our lifetimes, at least. And the way I look at it is if you love this country and if you love our democracy, it doesn't matter what party you belong to or if you belong to a party at all. There's no better time to be alive because th this is the fight of our lifetimes. And we really have an opportunity that few generations get to fight for and restore this democracy. So, so voting is super important, of course, helping others to vote in a state that makes it very hard for some to do so. You know, that's extraordinary. And we want to encourage people to do that. And then when in power, we need to make sure that we roll back these attacks on, on our elections, that we make it easier for people to vote by mail, for example, in a state that had 13% of the mail-in ballots rejected in, in March. We've got to make it easy to register. Register online like you can do in almost every other state. We want to remove every barrier to vote and then let the chips fall where they may. Whatever the people of Texas choose, that is the wisdom of, of the state and, and let that stand. Right now, it is so contorted and contrived that, that you really have to do some extraordinary things, including massive voter registration drives, massive volunteer pushes to reach voters and help them connect to that right they have as Americans to decide who's going to represent them and the course and direction that this state and our country will take. Mm. And you, you went to extraordinary measures to register voters. I mean, do I have my numbers right? It's in, in excess of 250,000 people that you registered, that's right. it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that is freaking yeah. incredible. So many people. I'd love to hear a little good news from that. Like, what was it like to get that many people registered to vote? I mean, that is like, in the face of so many things that are demoralizing, that is heartening. And, I, and not even through a party, just the fact that we had that many voters in Texas show up at the polls for the first time, maybe. It's just phenomenal. How did this feel to you? Like, what's what was some good news from the front lines there? Yeah, Jen, you're right. We need good news right now. And, and again, this, this comes back to 
how we overcome despair. And that, that is through action. So for two years, I joined thousands of other Texans, all, all of us volunteers in knocking on doors and reaching out to our unregistered neighbors and fellow Texans to get them on the rolls. And a unique dynamic in Texas, you don't see this in, in many other places, but to register voters here, you have to become what is known as a volunteer deputy registrar or a VDR in each separate county. We have 254 in Texas that you want to register someone and you have to get certified as a VDR in each one of those counties. Oh, so gosh. I went to dozens of Texas counties, you know, personally went down to the courthouse, got certified as a VDR, took the test, got the certificate. And then I could go knock on doors and I could meet people and I could just, you know, I'd ask open-ended questions. You know, how are things going in this community? Tell me about your neighborhood. How are you all doing? T tell me what the pandemic has meant for you and your family. And as we talked about things and we talked about how we want things to be better, I'd say, you know, probably the best, most powerful way for you to make the changes that you're talking about is to vote. And I know that you're not registered. I'm here to help you if you'd like to get registered. So having those one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and giving, you know, I guess each other some hope that there's there's a way to overcome this moment or to meet this moment, you know, that that's empowering. You were talking about agency earlier in light of the Dobbs decision. And and we all need that agency right now. We all need to know that we have a role to play. There's something that we can do. We're not merely witnesses or bystanders or on the sidelines. We're, we're in this and, and getting registered to vote, that puts you in this. So for the people we met, for all the volunteers who found a calling by going out and meeting their fellow Texans and getting them on the rolls, it was such a hopeful thing. And it, and it also provides, I think, the answer to this effort to disenfranchise so many Texans by literally meeting that, by bringing hundreds of thousands onto the rolls. And there, there are millions left to go out there and meet. And the great news is in our campaign, we now have 77,000 individual volunteers who are out there going door to door, making phone calls, doing the work. So we're going to grow those numbers day after day, month after month. It makes me very hopeful, very encouraged. It does me too. What also makes me hopeful, I've got a 24-year-old, 22, 20, I have all the ages. But these young voters are exciting. They're mobilized, they're motivated, they're paying attention, they're engaged. They are light years ahead of where I was when I was their age. I am stunned by their capacity to be highly engaged civically. And so I look forward to them going to the polls and the way in which they do. My daughter phone banked. I mean, she's in it. And it's, it's exciting to watch. I, I think we've got a really phenomenal generation coming up behind us that I'm super hopeful about. Um, I think they're going to do amazing things. One last question. As you mentioned, we're coming up on midterms here in Texas. Of course, we're coming up on a huge election for our state and it can be tempting. I know you understand this. You probably come up against this every day. It can be tempting for us just as voters. We're just ordinary you know, we're not fancy running for governor like you. We're just voters in our little towns and our little streets to kind of look around and just go, oh, what the hell? I mean, it's just everything is so dark and it's so divided and it's so polarized and it doesn't matter. This is a tricky one in Texas because we have trended one direction for a really long time. 
And just to go, I mean, why even bother? Why waste my time? Texas is going to do what it's going to do. And then at a national level, though, too, like just to imagine that change is impossible. And what's your pep talk to the demoralized voter who feels disempowered and maybe even a little hopeless? Mm. I was just in Fort Worth on Juneteenth, and I got to walk in this Juneteenth march with Opal Lee. And I know you know who she is, but for those who don't, she's known as the godmother or the grandmother or the mother of Juneteenth, which is now a nationally celebrated, federally recognized holiday that commemorates the day when General Granger on June 19th, 1865, read essentially the Emancipation Proclamation in Galveston, Texas, almost two and a half years since Abraham Lincoln had issued it. It had been that long before enslaved people in Texas knew that by order of of the president, they were free. So here's this 95-year-old woman who's walking two and a half miles. And, you know, you know, Texas, Jen, I mean, it is 102 degrees. It's blazing hot. It is humid. And she's, she's walking every step of that. But, but her story is so powerful to me. She was born in Marshall, Texas in East Texas. And in the 1930s, her family moved to Fort Worth and her African-American family, her dad had the audacity to buy a home in a white neighborhood. And on June 19th, 1939, a white mob comes and burns her house to the ground. And it gave her this this idea and this understanding of Juneteenth, not simply as a celebration of what happened in 1865, but a recognition of the continuing struggle. We're not there yet. You know, she understood at a very tender age, you know, she was just a kid in 1939. And she made it her mission to ensure that more Americans, including Americans who look like me and had a different life experience than hers, understand that. And so, you know, throughout the course of her life as an educator, as a civic leader, as somebody in Fort Worth, she was doing that work. And then she she started literally walking to Washington, D.C. from Fort Worth. And at this point, she's in her 80s trying to get national attention for this. And she prevails upon then President Obama and, and following that President Biden. And ultimately, she she succeeds. But you just think about 1939 to 2021, so it was recognized last year, to where she is today, you know, if Opal Lee can can overcome those kinds of challenges in their lives, and, and if your house were burned down by a white mob, and you're a young black girl in Texas in 1939, you might be, you know, you might be forgiven for saying, you know what, I give up, I'm never going to overcome this, it's way too powerful, but for her to have that persistence and determination and courage and discipline. Who are we, you know, essentially, who are we to give up in the face of the challenges that we see today? I actually say, you know, we we must count ourselves lucky to be alive at this moment with so many challenges. Few people get the opportunity to meet these challenges and to overcome them. And Jen, I love how you always or or so often frame things through your kids. I, I look at it the same way. Our kids, whether they're in their 20s, or in my case, in their teens, at some point, they're going to look back on you and me in the year 2022. And they're going to look at how we did against all these challenges. And we want them to be proud of us. We want them to know that we didn't give up, we didn't give in, we stood up to be counted, and we did the work that was necessary. And ultimately, we won. We don't know when, and we don't know how, 
but we know that we've got to try, right? And that that was that was one of the things Opal Lee said. I said, I, I got a chance to meet her last year, and I said, when you started walking to DC, did you know? Did you think you were going to to win this recognition for Juneteenth? And she said, you know, honestly, I, I didn't, but I knew I had to try. And I love that spirit. So, you know, you certainly have that. And, and so many of the people who listen to you, watch you, follow you, they have that spirit as well. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to share that with as many people as we can in our lives because people need that right now, right? They, they need something to fight for something to be a part of that's bigger than themselves. And it's incredibly powerful thing. And it, and it definitely overcomes the despair. So thank you for asking. And thanks again for having me on. So, so nice to be able to see you and to talk with you and Mm -hmm. to hear you again. So much same. Thank you for that good word. It is the only thing that has ever mattered and it has mattered and it does matter. This is just our turn in history to hold the lantern up on the path and it's good work and you're doing it. And I'm so grateful to you for just keeping your foot on the gas in Texas, which is not an easy state. It's a good state, but it's not an easy state to lead in the way that you lead. And I'm proud of you and we're proud of you and we're excited and and we feel energized with possibility and that this will continue to be a place that we want our kids to stay and to be raised and to build their families too. And this is the kind of future we want. So we're going to have to build it. And so we're cheering for you. Last question. You have to answer this. It doesn't matter that you're fancy and you're like running for governor. I asked you this last time. Everybody gets it. And I'm going to remind you of your answer last time because you can't say that again. This is a question from a priest that I love. And she says, and you can answer this, by the way, however you want, like literally however you want. It doesn't have to be like, It can be earnest, but it does not have to be. Her question is, what is saving your life right now? And last time you said Amy. And so we're going to go ahead and assume she's still saving your life, but you have to give us a different answer. (laughs) You know, music is. Yeah? Like what? There was a saying that was really true for me as a kid growing up. You know, I was a weirdo. I was a misfit. I felt as awkward as a human being could be. And I discovered this community of punk rockers in, in El Paso, you know, when I was in, you know, my freshman or sophomore year in in high school and kids, my same age, making music who also were screwed up or messed up or weird or didn't fit in or didn't know why they were on this planet to begin with. And there was this thing people would say punk rock saved my life. And it it really, I think it really honestly did. And, you know, I've, I've often thought I'm, I'm going to be 50 in, in a few months. I've often thought, well, I can't listen to punk rock anymore because I'm, I'm an adult now and I've got, you know, kids who are teenagers. And yet that that music and what it speaks to and bands like The Clash, they're just these incredibly powerful universal themes. And there's a lot of power in in that music. And my youngest, who's 11, has just taken up piano and drums and and guitar and he's just so gifted and it's it's such a honor to be with him and he and I have been rocking out in the basement recently he's been teaching me how to play Metallica Um, we're we're learning the song one right now I'm a big fan of John Doe and the band X and so we're learning some some X songs but yeah that it's it's just so good you can get so consumed obviously in this really important work that we are all doing together and you should be consumed by it, but there's also got to be joy. There's got to be joy in our lives. And for me, music is, is joy and it's this wonderful outlet. And to be able to share that 
with my son has just been wonderful. And, and that is saving my life right now. <laughs> That's so great. Thanks for being on today. I'm really glad to see you and just excited about your leadership and thankful for it and rallying for you and for Texas. And so any way that I can ever support you, support your work, you know where to find me. Thank you, Jen. It means the world to me. Absolutely. Have a great day with your family. Thank you. All right, guys. I hope that that encouraged you in kind of the way that it did me. I think I needed that. I needed that conversation. I needed to sit under leadership like that directly for an hour and remember that there was another way besides brutal polarization and absolutely unbreachable partisanship, that there is another way through and it's possible. And you guys, I will have this whole show over at jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. I'll have the show notes, but also all of Beto's everything, his handles, where he's at. You can see his travel schedule, his book, everything, just kind of a one-stop shop. And so thanks for being here. Thank you for both asking for and supporting conversations like this. We're proud to host them. Laura and her team work so hard on these interviews and these guests and these conversations. And I can just tell you that the whole podcast team is committed to bringing what we think are important discussions to this community. And so thank you for being the best listeners and responders. You're so trustworthy and so reliable, and we are obsessed with you. So on behalf of Laura and her podcast crew and Amanda and I, we love you and we'll see you next time.